go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses. we're going to start in verse 12 today. As we learned in our introduction a couple of weeks ago, chapters 1 through 7 of this letter um, is ultimately a defense by the Apostle Paul. We don't know a lot about the specifics, but there were some false teachers apparently. Um, Paul calls them super or hyper apostles in this letter that had come into the church and began to poison the minds of the Corinthians against Paul. We know a couple of things. They appeared to challenge his credibility. They appeared to challenge his integrity, um, his authority as an apostle. Um, And then probably even his teaching to some degree. We're going to see, we're going to touch on that a little bit today. Paul had attempted to deal with some of this um, by making an unexpected visit, which apparently didn't go too well. We refer to that as the painful visit. Paul talks about that in this letter. And then he followed up with a pretty frank letter that is referred to as the severe letter. It's something that um, Paul sort of, uh, he says he felt sorrow, sort of regretted sending it, but didn't really regret sending it. Um, Caused a lot of sorrow and grief. So today, as we look at what Paul does, he's going to defend himself against two very specific accusations that apparently were leveled against him. One is just his general conduct, how he had behaved himself among them. And the second is his decision to postpone a visit. And so as we look at this defense, we're going to try to draw out some um, practical application for us as well. Much of the theology in this letter, um, Dustin and I have talked about this as we've met, much of the theology is sort of buried within the defense. So Paul's primary purpose in chapters 1 through 7 is to defend himself, but woven within that is theology. Um, And sort of, in fact, the passage I was working on, Yesterday, which actually comes near the end of this section, um, Paul uh, is kind of explaining a number of things, and it's just laced with um, theology that motivates him. And so we find um, Paul's motivation in doing what he did, even through some of that. And so he weaves that into this. So even though the primary focus is on his defense, we'll see what we can learn from it. Let's start by looking at him defending his general conduct. If you look at verses 12 through 14 with me, it says this. For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand, or what you read and understand, and I hope you will understand until the end, just as you also partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud as you are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. These three purpose, or these three verses here, actually set the tone or the theme for these first seven chapters. Some in Corinth were apparently questioning Paul's motives and sincerity, especially since he had changed his mind about his visit. It appears that some were suggesting that Paul didn't mean what he had written to them in his letters. Um, There's some internal evidence in here that some considered Paul's physical sufferings that he had and the misfortunes that he faced as a sign that he wasn't all that qualified to be an apostle. In fact, maybe that he was less um, qualified than the super apostles. It would be much like... um, you know, when I was back at uh, Emanuel Baptist Church in Wausau, Wisconsin, one of the best teachers that I had met was an old farmer who had never gra- he never even finished the fourth grade. But he was a phenomenal Bible teacher. Well, some might look at him with his big, rugged, worn, beat-up hands, and he would come in dressed in his coveralls and stand up to teach. And some might look at that and think, wow, who is this guy? Never finished high school, didn't go into college, doesn't have a seminary degree. They're not going to give him much credit but they may favor somebody else that comes in with a three-piece suit, the tie that went off to seminary, that kind of stuff. And So it might have been at least some of the internal evidence here that some were questioning Paul's authority and and his ability to teach and other things just by merely looking at him. In fact, it's referred to here as looking at the appearance in this letter. Some were also questioning Paul's refusal to accept payment for his services. It was rather strange he does that near the end of the book where um, there apparently was a problem because they had looked at Paul and said, well, you won't, you won't allow us to pay you for your services, and somehow that was a bad thing. But then they turn around a little bit later and accuse him of taking from the, the offerings that Titus and others had collected. And so there was this double-edged, or double-edged sword. 
it's also fairly obvious as we get to the end of this book that um, they were questioning his authority as an apostle because Paul spends the last few chapters reestablishing that authority and basically says, I'm coming back and I'm either going to come back with a, with a rod or in grace and it's up to you. He was going to exercise his authority. So those charges led Paul to where we are today which was for him to ultimately defend himself and his ministry. And as I said, the first defense has to do with his general conduct. Look at verse 12. It says, For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. If you're going to summarize that up, basically what Paul says is, Our confidence is this, our conscience tells us that we conducted ourselves right. Our conscience tells us that we conducted ourselves with holiness and sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God. So basically, having a clear conscience here refers to being aware of any wrongdoing in one's conduct or behavior. In other words, when Paul says this, the testimony of our conscience that tells us that we did right in our behavior, he's simply saying that I've got a clear conscience. I've got a clear conscience. This is something that was important to Paul. Acts chapter 23, verse 1. I'm going to read this to you. When Paul was accused of wrongdoing by the Jews, his response to the council was this. Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. He was also accused in Acts 24, verse 16. He says this, In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before God and before men. When Paul wrote to Timothy, he referred to serving God with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did. In fact, in that same letter to Timothy, he encourages Timothy to keep the faith with a good conscience because those who had abandoned those things suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. And so maintaining a clear conscience or a good conscience was something that was extremely important to the Apostle Paul because in maintaining a clear conscience, he was able to defend himself against attacks. And so in this particular instance where some were accusing Paul of somehow not behaving appropriately when he was in their presence, whatever that might have been, Paul was able to say, but my conscience is clear. But you notice Paul was not referring to simply having a clear conscience in his own eyes here. Did you notice something else about those passages we read? They mention having a clear conscience before God. In other words, Paul wasn't as concerned with sort of having a clear conscience in and of himself, but rather knowing that his conscience was clear before God. When addressing this behavior here, notice he says a few things. He refers to his conduct by using the word holiness. Now, you may have a different um, translation. Um, when it comes to putting together our Greek New Testament, um, there are scraps. We have full books, but we also have scraps. And um, what happens is you take all those sort of, you put them together, and that's how we know we have Paul's letter to the Corinthians here. Well, there are what are called variants. And what that means is maybe some manuscripts have a different word here than what these manuscripts do. And so what, what happens sometimes is different translations favor one variant over another. And so your translation may say in holiness here, like the New American Standard, but there's a variant that has a different word there that actually refers to generosity or sincerity, simplicity, or single-mindedness. And so most, I think, most translations actually don't have holiness there. They have something like pure motives, simplicity, integrity. In other words, Paul says that it's in integrity or in simplicity or with pure motives I served you. Either way, whether it's holiness there or whether it's pure motives or or whatnot, what Paul is saying is that in, in, in the eyes of God, my conscience is clear. He says he conducted himself with godly sincerity, or that's actually literally the sincerity of God, So it refers to having pure motives there. He says that his conduct was not in fleshly wisdom. In other words, it wasn't just driven by human thinking. But he says it was done in the grace of God. So all of these things, Paul is indicating that before God, his conscience was clear. In other words, it wasn't just clear in his own eyes, but it was clear in the eyes of God. That was important to Paul. Now that's a striking contrast to the motives and lack of integrity displayed by the false teachers. Paul will hint at that throughout this. In fact, in other places, Paul makes it very clear that men like this, these hyper-apostles or these false apostles, were driven by greed, by self-promotion, and all kinds of other things. 
In fact, these apostles, Paul says, um, were more interested in appearance, which seems to imply that they like to carry themselves in a certain way. They did things in a certain way to gain the favor of men. And so Paul is setting this contrast between his conscience being genuinely clear before the Lord and not so the case with them. If you notice in verses 13 and 14 that Paul had hoped that they would fully understand this about him. In fact, verses 13 and 14 read like this, For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand. And I hope you will understand until the end. Understand what? That his conscience was clear. That his behavior was appropriate. Just as you also partially did understand us that we who are your, or that we are your reason to be proud as you are also ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. In other words, Paul is simply hoping here at this point that they would see that his conduct was appropriate. And he's going to build a case for that as he goes through the text here. So the question as we look at the, just these first few verses here, Paul's appeal to his conscience, what can we actually learn from that? What can we do with that? Paul was able to defend his behavior because his conscience was clear before God. He uses it as a defense. Have you ever heard that before? When maybe somebody was accused of something and they say, hey, my conscience is clear. Okay? That can be an appropriate defense, but only when that conscience is clear in the sight of God. Remember when David cut off the bottom of Saul's robe? Remember what, what he did after that? Nobody was there to tell David, hey, that was just not right, dude. What are you thinking? In fact, the men that were with David wanted David to take Saul's life. But what was it that made Paul suffer remorse in that regard? Anybody remember? It was his conscience that moved him. The Holy Spirit convinced him through his conscience that what he had done was inappropriate. He had essentially shamed the king by cutting off the bottom of his robe, which is where the family insignia was. And so it was David's conscience that moved him to remorse. When Paul wrote to Timothy that a pure heart, sincere faith, and a good conscience go hand in hand, he also mentioned that when men abandon those types of things, they suffer shipwreck. And in fact, it's in the context of teachers, which is interesting. Um, It's rather interesting when you look at Um, even some false teachers today, oftentimes, and you look at them, you have to wonder how they can do what they do in good conscience. Um, I wouldn't say on a regular basis, but occasionally when I'm stretching at night, I'll be flipping through the TV channels and come across individuals like Rod Parsley and others, and as I watch them do their shakedown, um, I find myself wondering, how how can you do this in good conscience? You, you, You have to know that this is not right. Peter called on his readers to keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, Paul's case, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. So Peter even says, look, it's extremely important for you to maintain a clear conscience because when you're accused of wrongdoing, you can appeal to that. The second thing that we can learn is that this conscience, again, has to be clear in the sight of God, not just our own eyes. I was watching the, uh, I was watching Fox News um, the other night. I don't remember if I was watching the hurricane stuff or, or what it was. But they did this little montage, and it had to do with abortion. And it was interesting because they selected three individuals that tried to appeal to the Christian right, which would be us in here. It was Chelsea Clinton, Hillary Clinton, and Nancy Pelosi. And what was interesting about this diatribe, okay, yeah, what was interesting about this diatribe, yeah, well this is, this will, this is actually what makes it entertaining, is in Chelsea Clinton, they, they're Chelsea Clinton's um, segment, she was, she was talking about her faith, and how she's a deeply religious person. But somehow, those of us that favor banning abortion, in her mind, are being very unchristian. Her words. That's just very unchristian. Okay. Well, then her mother, they do a little montage with her mother, who 
quotes the scriptures now to support um, abortion. It says, Jesus said, suffer the little children to come unto me. He didn't say the little children should suffer. In other words, it's much better to murder a baby in the womb to prevent suffering. Because after all, what would that baby have to face if it were born? I don't know, gee, maybe adoption, <laughs> you know, maybe a life knowing Christ, if she, whatever it is. But again, in her mind, and in Chelsea Clinton's mind, they thought God was on their side. Okay, and then Nancy Pelosi, um, going on, I don't remember the exact quote from her, but I do remember one specific thing she said is, she referenced, we are doing the work of God. And those who favor banning abortion are opposed to God and not doing the work of God. And I thought to myself, as I looked at these individuals, I thought, their minds and their consciences are seared. They can't think clearly. But beyond that, they honestly think that they're on the side of God. That is a warped, warped conscience. They can't claim, as they stand before Jesus, oh, we just thought it was right. Because their consciences are not clean. They think they are. But they're not. They're seared. They're warped. And so when Paul makes his appeal and he says, look, our proud confidence is this. It's the testimony of our conscience that tell us we behaved appropriately when we were with you. Paul can do that because Paul understood that it wasn't just, hey, we look good in our eyes, but rather, in the eyes of God, we acted in a holy manner. We acted in a right manner. It's in the eyes of God that our conscience is clear before you. And that is absolutely critical. And so one of the takeaways for us is that we have to make sure that when we do things, when we behave a certain way, and we think to ourselves, I'm fine, that we really have to measure that against whether or not that's fine in God's eyes. God is the barometer. It's not us. And so Paul appears to that barometer here. That as Paul looked at his behavior, how he behaved among the Corinthians, that he was able to say, you know what, the Lord is pleased with what we did. And my conscience is testimony to that. We are warned in the scriptures not to allow our consciences to be seared by sin. When we sin, and we ignore the prompting of the Holy Spirit, we continue to sin, we sear our conscience to, when, to where we can no longer have a clear conscience before the Lord. If anything, maybe we can say we're okay in our own eyes, but not in the Lord's eyes. And so that was critical to Paul, because it was one of the things that allowed Paul to defend himself against accusations. We see that in other places where Paul did certain things. For instance, one of the reasons Paul did not take payment for what he did was he saw that as a stumbling block for those he was ministering to. One of the reasons Paul worked with his own hands to supply the needs of his men was for that purpose. That he could not be accused of taking advantage of people. You know, was it was it David mentioned visiting a church years ago where they passed the plate five times or whatever it was because people weren't giving enough and they just kept doing it over and over and over, you know? Um, we can't do that with a clear conscience, you know? And so we see in Paul here this appeal to the clear conscience and realize that it's extremely important that we are very careful not to allow our own conscience to become seared and that when we appeal to our conscience, we have to be able to do it understanding that God is genuinely on our side in that respect. There's only one way to know that, folks. Only one way to know that, and it's to know what he said here, right? The problem with... Hillary Clinton, quoting from the scriptures, is she doesn't have a clue what the scriptures actually say. She doesn't have a clue what they mean. The reason Chelsea Clinton is wrong is because Chelsea Clinton says, well, I'm deeply spiritual, but she doesn't understand what unchristian genuinely is. Because if she did, she would understand that it does not honor God to rip a baby out of a womb. Kimberly and I had a great discussion yesterday about how that works, and even Kimberly went, wait a minute. So the only difference is here versus here, right? Here you can kill a baby, meaning inside the womb, and it's not murder. But here, it is murder. Same baby. Here, it's not murder. Here, it is murder. That's warped. It's not a clear conscience. The reason that Nancy Pelosi could say, we're doing God's work, is because Nancy Pelosi doesn't have a clue what God's work is. So, it's important that when we appeal to our conscience that we understand and recognize that that conscience is clear before the Lord and not just ourselves. 
which means we have to understand this. So Paul starts by defending himself against these false accusations by appealing to a clear conscience. The next thing he does is he defends his change in plans, and this is the rest of the text for this morning. Starting in verse 15. I'm just going to read 15 through... uh, I'm going to read all of it, and then we'll come back to it. In this confidence, I intended to come to you at first, so that you might twice receive a blessing, that is, to pass by your way into Macedonia, and again from Macedonia to come to you, and by you to be helped on my journey to Judea. Therefore, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? Or what I propose, do I propose according to the flesh? Or purpose. What I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh? So that with me there will be yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? But as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but yes in him. For as many as the promise or as the promises of God, in him they are yes, therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. That's a mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> we'll come back to that. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. But I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you I did not come again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy, for in your faith you are standing firm. But I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. For if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? This is the very thing I wrote to you, so that when I came I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy would be joy of all of you. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. So the Corinthians were upset with Paul. They weren't happy because he had changed his plans. He had said he was going to visit him, but he failed to do it. And so they were upset. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, at the very end of the book, Paul shared his plans to come to Corinth, and he even mentioned he might stay after going to, uh, to Macedonia. He said he might ex- have an extended stay there for maybe through the winter, three or four months. However, something happened. So Paul had to change those plans, made an emergency visit we talked about. He then followed it up with a letter. And so he changed those plans. There's, that's the reality of it. Paul said, I'm going to come and see you again. But then he decided not to do it. So, rightly so. Maybe they're a little disappointed. But they were upset about it. But they took it a little step further and they accused Paul of vacillating. Of not being a man of his own word. So originally Paul planned to come visit the Corinthians. He actually planned on visiting them twice. His plan was, as he was going to Macedonia, he would visit them, and then as he would come back. And so his real plans were that he would visit them on two occasions. He says in verse 15 and 16, In this confidence I intended at first to come to you, so that you might twice receive a blessing. That is, to pass your way into Macedonia, and again from Macedonia to come to you, and by you to be helped on my journey to Judea. So he intended to visit them twice. Uh, Again, one of those times might have been an extended stay all the way through the winter. But because of that emergency visit, what happened there, Paul changed his plan. So in verse 17, we find out that they were accusing him of fickleness, not being a man of his word. He says this, Therefore, I was not vacillating, was I? That means to take things lightly, to be fickle. You know what it means to be fickle? Well, Paul was basically saying, what, was I being fickle here? And I sort of just flippantly say, I was going to come visit you and then just not do it. So they were accusing him of being maybe fickle or vacillating. Um, Others apparently accused him of making decisions based on the flesh. Notice he says here, or what I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh? In other words, Paul just sort of flippantly makes decisions based on how he feels at the moment. Do you ever meet people who, you'll ask them to do something and they just sort of, oh, absolutely, and they're all thrilled about it. You just sort of sense that, yeah, there's no chance it's going to happen. You know, that they're just afraid to say, no, I'm not interested. You know, but they say it anyway because they just don't want to have to say no. Well, that's kind of the, the point here. You know, making it based on the flesh. Instead of just being honest and sincere, no, I'm not really interested in doing that. So they accuse them of basically being a little fickle, they accuse him of sort of vacillating here, sort of 
accuse them of making decisions based on the flesh. And because of that, in their mind, Paul's word was meaningless and untrustworthy to them. Notice he says, so that with me there will be yes, yes, and no, no at the same time. That's a rather interesting phrase for us, but it's one that Paul actually used. I mean, sorry, uh, Jesus actually used. This is the principle that Jesus taught. You remember, the Jews had a habit of swearing an oath. We kind of do that here too. I swear to God I didn't do that. Okay, As if somehow, oh, now I trust you since you're swearing to God. You know, it's just sort of a way of calling, you know, it's, I'm really trying to convince you here. Well, Jesus deals with that, and he said that oath-taking wasn't really necessary. That instead, Jesus said this, let your yes mean yes and your no mean your no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. So basically, Jesus has said, no, look, just say yes when you mean yes, say no when you mean no. That's all it takes. You don't need to go beyond that and start now invoking the name of God. And so Paul is repeating this principle here. He's saying, look, are you saying that um, my yes doesn't mean yes and my no doesn't mean no? Now at first look here, you know, he said he'd visit. That's the yes. Yes, I'll visit. And then he didn't. That's the no. And Paul is saying, is that really what's going on here? Is it really that I'm vacillating, that I'm not a man of my word? Well, his answer to each one of these rhetorical questions is no. He wasn't fickle. He did not make plans based on the flesh. And his words were trustworthy because he spoke clearly and always meant what he said. That's the reality of it. But they were not accepting that. They were accusing him of not being a man of his word. Now, what's interesting about that is, while they questioned that, it appears, based on the text, that because they felt they couldn't, trust Paul and what he said about his visit, that maybe they couldn't trust him in the other things that he had said too. In fact, that may have been the work of the false teachers. They may have said, hey, come on, you know, Paul's teaching you all these things. We know that these were probably Judaizers of some kind, okay, coming in and teaching the law. Paul later in the book says they were teaching another gospel. And that his concern was that the Corinthians were accepting that other gospel, And so these men were coming in, they have to challenge Paul and what he's saying, because Paul obviously was teaching faith by Christ alone. The Judaizers were probably teaching works of the law. So they came in apparently, and in order to prove you couldn't trust Paul's theology, they would say, you can't trust, look, if you can't trust Paul with his word to come here, how can you trust anything he says? He's not a man of his word. So if he said he was going to come visit you, and he didn't follow through on that, how can you trust anything he said? And it appears that the Corinthians were falling prey to that. Look at verses 18 through 22. Paul says this, But as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. But you notice how he defines this word to you? Look at verse 19. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among us by you, that's the word he's talking about here, by me, Silvanus and Timothy, that word was not yes and no, but yes in him. In other words, Paul is saying... Our word to you, what we taught you and what we preached to you, wasn't yes, yes, and no, no, or yes and no. It wasn't mixed, it wasn't um, confusing, it wasn't vacillating, it wasn't inappropriate. For as many as are the promises of God, in him they are yes, therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God. Now that's a little bit rough to get through. But Paul's primary point, I'll try to summarize it this way. Paul is basically using sort of yes here as right and good and no as not. And he's basically saying, look, what we preached to you were the promises of God, and they were all yes in Jesus Christ. They were all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's what we taught you. And so he is basically saying, our word to you was good. Our word to you was right, because what we preached to you was a fulfillment of all of God's promises in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. So he says, For as many as are the promises of God, in him they are yes, they are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Therefore also through him is our amen. Amen is yes, so be it. That's what Paul preached. To the glory of God through us. Now he who established us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Basically, Paul's argument kind of goes like this. If I can summarize this. You can trust what we said to you. Not just that we're going to come to you, because Paul will make a visit to them in the future. He hasn't given up on them, but he's saying you can trust what we taught you. So this isn't a direct now attack or a, a, 
a defense against these false teachers saying, because you couldn't trust Paul saying he was going to visit you and then he changed his mind, you can't trust what he taught you as well. Paul says, well, here's our defense against that. First off, God is faithful. Second, we preached Jesus, God's Son, among you. That's what we did. And all of God's promises are realized in Jesus Christ. That's what we taught you. God has been glorified through us as a result of that. The same God established you, the Corinthians. That's the one you serve. He's also the one that established us, meaning Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, together with you in Christ. In other words, we share a common heritage. We share a common belief. And then lastly, my word, therefore, is right. So the line of argument that's through this, this, I'll call it mud here, it's a little difficult to follow Paul, he's basically simply saying, you can trust us because what we taught you was all about the promises of God being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And God is faithful and will indeed fulfill those in Christ. So if that's what we taught you, aren't we trustworthy? And the answer to that would be yes. Like another reason why Paul places so much emphasis on, hey, we preached Christ and Christ crucified, that's it. I didn't come to you with anything else. I came to you with Christ and Christ crucified. What I find oftentimes is that I look at some of these false teachers that I see on television, and they're not all false teachers, but I just meant that it's amazing the number of them that are, is they get on there with their schemes and their little things that they develop, you know. One of my favorite is an individual that um, his, his shtick is the wisdom of God. And I swear, what I hear from this guy, 99% has nothing to do with the wisdom of God. It's all him. He's written a number of books that um, are kind of like the book of Proverbs. And they're all from his own imagination or his own mind. And I'm like, the reason I can't trust you is because you don't come to me with the scriptures or with God. You come to me with all this other fluff that comes out of your head. You know? And so Paul is basically his defense here that, that the Corinthians could trust him as a teacher and as an evangelist, as an apostle, was that what I came to you with were the promises of God fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's what we did. And you can trust that. So, where do we go from there? Well, unfortunately... Paul's emergency visit did not go as he had planned, so he decided against making another visit to Corinth. So now he's going to get right to the heart of it. He's established why we can trust him. He's established, and he hasn't really addressed the issue of his visit yet, why he didn't come. All he said is, he, he agrees, you know what, yeah, I didn't come. You're saying I can't be trusted. Here's why you can trust me. I have a clear conscience, and what I came to you with was the promises of God fulfilled in Christ. So I am trustworthy. Then he's going to go ahead and he's going to answer. So why didn't I come to you? What was the issue there? Well, he tells us his two motives, his two reasons why he didn't actually visit them. Look at verses 23 and following. He says, But I call God as my witness to my soul that to spare you I did not come again to Corinth. So the first motivation, the first reason why Paul changed his plan and did not come to Corinth was because he wanted to spare them. In other words, it was focused on them. He doesn't, he doesn't really state here exactly what he was trying to spare them from, but it appears probably two things. One is chastisement, and the other is sorrow. The reason I think that is because in the end of the book, um, the last few chapters, he basically warns them. He, lo- he says, basically, I'm going to have to come again, and I can either come with a rod, chastisement, or I can come with grace. It's up to you. And Paul gets very bold at the end of this letter. That severe letter that he wrote was a letter of chastisement and rebuke, which is why it caused sorrow and grief. That painful visit Paul made caused them sorrow and grief. And so Paul says, I wanted to spare you both of those. I wanted to spare you sorrow, I wanted to spare you chastisement. In fact, the concept of sorrow comes up in verses 1-4 through of chapter 2. I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. So it appears that the two reasons, or the two things that Paul wanted to spare them was more sorrow and more grief. You know, I think about this. um, Did you ever find yourselves in a spot, I'll use our kids as an example of this, if you're dealing with an issue that you're really having trouble maybe correcting with with your children, do you ever get sort of tired 
of recorrecting that, but not tired in the sense of just, I'm tired of dealing with it, I'm angry, but where you almost feel like, you know what, I, I feel like, I feel burdened with this that if I keep doing this, I might crush their spirit. You know, Paul warns us about um, causing our children to be exasperated, meaning there's a right way to discipline and a wrong way to discipline. Do you ever find yourself kind of backing off a little bit, maybe letting the leash out a little bit, if you will, because you just don't want to have to discipline again? You're like, you know what, maybe they're getting it. I don't want to have to climb on them. You know, I'm somebody who I like to fix, and I'm, 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 all, I'm too strict at times, I think, with the kids, where I'm just quick to correct, and I know that that can cause sorrow or grief sometimes. That's kind of the impression they're getting from Paul here, that he's like, you know what, man, if I go to him again, we're going to have the same kind of stuff that happened on that painful visit, and I don't want to go through that again with them. I don't want to do that to them. So instead, he wrote a letter. A little softer, maybe. Um... It was still a rebuke, but maybe not quite as bad as seeing him face to face. The other thing we see in there is Paul says that his desire was not to control them. Look at verse 24. He says, Not that we lord it over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy, for in your faith you are standing firm. In other words, what he does there is he's saying, Look, I didn't come to you because I didn't want to cause, or I wanted to spare you, but I also didn't want to control your faith. Think about this when you discipline your kids. Is the goal ultimately literally just to control them, to get them to stop doing something? Or is it ultimately they might grow into maturity and just learn not to do that on their own? You know, I grew up with a, a family whose parents took the first approach. It was all about control. In fact, they couldn't go to see movies at movie theaters, but they could watch those same movies in their house. And the reason was, we well, just don't go to movies. And that caused some some struggle for the the young man that I swam with because he, one of the reasons he abandoned the faith, if you want to call it that, was because he's like the hypocrisy. Because all my parents wanted to do was to control us, that we look like little Christian robots. And I think in his case he was right. The things that his parents would do, um, I'm convinced led him down that road. Because it was more about behaving as a Christian than growing and learning as a Christian. And so, sometimes with our kids, you know, when we think about disciplining them, it isn't just about, we don't want to control their behavior. I don't want Kimberly and Katie to simply be little robots that do the right thing. I want them to love the Lord and to do the right thing because they love the Lord. I'm not interested in controlling their behavior. I want them to have the right heart. And that's what Paul is saying here in verse 24. I I spared you this visit because I just, I wanted to spare you some things including controlling your faith. Which, to be frank, might likely have happened had Paul visited again. The second motive, if you will, the second reason, the first was that Paul wanted to spare them, probably chastisement and sorrow. The second motive was that Paul wanted to spare himself further sorrow. If you look at chapter 2, verse 1, I determined this for my own sake, so the first was for their sake, now it's for Paul's sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. For I ca- for if I caused you sorrow, who then is going to make me glad but the one whom I have made sorrowful? Discipline generally causes sorrow, doesn't it? Grief. When a parent disciplines a child, it produces tears oftentimes. Not just for the child, but oftentimes for the parent as well, doesn't it? You know, you've heard that statement. Um, this hurts you more than it does me. There's a certain amount of truth to that. Spiritual or church discipline is no different because it causes grief and sorrow on both sides. And Paul recognized that. When Paul went on his painful visit... He experienced intense sorrow and grief when he wrote his letter to them, his follow-up letter. He said he did it through tears and anguish. He hated to see it. And he wanted to spare himself that again. Can we blame him for that? Can we blame Paul for saying, I I can't do that again? He was attacked. He was accused. He was rebuffed. Can you blame him for not wanting to go back? 
He knew it would call them, cause them grief and sorrow, but he also knew that it would be much too much for him to bear personally as well. There's an individual back at my home church, an elder in the church, very well respected individual. In fact, you wouldn't know him, but if you had ever received a letter back in the 80s or 90s or even maybe as much into the 2000s from James Dobson or, or others, it was likely written by this individual because that's the work he did. James Dobson didn't write his own letters. This individual did on behalf of him. He began to teach some things in the church. He began to populate our library with books that were heretical in nature. People in the church started to confront him on it. He didn't respond very well, so the elders decided to start confronting it. Well, he got a little puffed up with pride. He happened to know me fairly well. We were fairly close. He had given me my first computer to take away to seminary with me. I came home for the summer to do an internship at the church, and pastor pulled me aside and said, Mike, um, we've been having this issue with this individual, Tim. Explain to me what was going on. He said um, he's become stubborn and somewhat arrogant, and he's claiming that he will not talk to any of us about this issue anymore because we're too ignorant to understand it, and that he would only talk with you because you're in seminary and you might be able to understand it. So I began to meet with him on a regular basis and saw that he was hard-hearted and arrogant and proud. He was abusing the scriptures and twisting them. And it finally got to the point where I made a recommendation to the elder board that he be removed from the elder board. And uh, as you can imagine, um, it caused a lot of tension on both sides. It hurt me dearly to have to um, recommend that to him, especially knowing that this individual had paid for a portion of my seminary and had supplied me with things that I needed. He was well-loved within the church. Um, his wife, when, when he was removed from the elder board, he decided to leave the church, took his wife with him. And I remember the day I saw his wife, she was absolutely in tears, being forced to leave her family, her children, or leaving their friends. Um, it gets hard sometimes. Discipline is that way. It causes grief on both sides. There was nobody at that church that was happy seeing him leave. Including those of us that absolutely believed that he was leading the church astray by his false teaching. He taught Sunday school, and he taught this stuff in Sunday school. And even with that, you might think there would be much hatred towards that, but instead there was more sorrow and grief. In fact, a number of years later, he walked back into the church, um, a much more humble individual. He found that there wasn't a whole lot of places where he could go where he was accepted teaching those things. God used it to, I think, break his heart, um, brought him back kind of humbly. And he was welcomed with open arms. People were thrilled. But not just because he was back, but because of what God had done. But that's the way that it works sometimes. And so Paul here is saying, look, I, I couldn't do this because of the sorrow and the grief. But he didn't abandon them because he wrote him a letter. So even though he didn't go and visit, he did write him the letter. He's still writing them here. So what we find here is that Paul's change in plans were motivated um, by love. He mentions these two motives. I don't want to cause you grief. I didn't want to cause myself grief. But if you look at verses 3 and 4, we find out that all of this was motivated by love. He says, this is the very thing I wrote you. So that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might, and here's the key, might know the love which I have especially for you. And so Paul's desire not to go to them in grief or to bring grief upon them was something that was motivated out of his love for them. And he's saying he hoped they recognized that and understood that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13 here, a little bit later, Paul says this, For this reason I am writing these things while absent, so that when present, I need not use severity, in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. He says here, For to this end I also wrote you that I might put you to the test. That's chapter 2. Whether you are obedient in all things. And so what Paul basically is saying here is that because I loved you, I didn't want to come to you again in the same way that I did in the painful visit. I didn't want to come to you again in the same way that I did with this, this harsh letter. 
what Paul wanted was to be able to come to them um, and experience joy. So he wrote them a letter, hoping that it would test them, prove their obedience, and then ultimately prepare them for when Paul could then make a visit under much better circumstances. Notice he says in verse 4, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you, with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. You know, one of the things that we would do with our kids as they were growing up when we would have to spank them, I don't know if you guys even remember this, um, we had a little process we would follow. We would pull them aside and explain to them what they had done was wrong. We would only spank them when what they did was something they knew was wrong. In other words, if they had no way of knowing that was wrong, we weren't going to spank them for it. They might get disciplined and talked to because it's part of the process. So we sort of limited the spanking to those things that they knew were wrong that we would consider to be almost deliberate disobedience. But we would explain to them, this is what you did. This was wrong. Now here's the consequence. We would explain to them they were going to be spanked. We would then spank them. But when we were done spanking them, we would then take them, bring them in, We would tell them that we loved them, and we would pray with them. All because the goal was, we really wanted them to understand that our discipline was something we did in love. And that's what Paul says here. I couldn't come to you because of the grief and the sorrow. I knew it would cause you too much pain. I knew it would cause me too much pain, so I wrote to you. And my hope was that in writing to you, even though it was stern, even though it was a rebuke, that you would ultimately see that what I had done was out of love for you. So what can we take away from this? We'll wrap it up with this. One of the things I think we learned from from this part of the book here was that words actually are important, and our words have to be trustworthy. You know, Paul built a case here that you can trust what I say, Now, they chose to accuse him of not being a trustworthy man, and that will happen anyway. But it's very difficult for us to be able to defend themselves if we don't always mean what we say. And that's critical, especially for believers. It was critical for Paul here. For him to be able to make this defense to the Corinthians, in order for them to say, you know, yeah, Paul has been faithful. He is a man that we can trust. Paul had to be a man whose whose words were trustworthy. And I think sometimes we don't always behave or act that way. We're afraid to say what we really need to say or be open and honest about how we say things that sometimes we just sort of dance around a little bit. Sometimes we exaggerate too much. You know, I hate the whole political thing now because everybody, it's just, you can't trust anything that's said anymore. You know, I got to thinking about this the other day. I'm like, you know what? I could never run for office. I wouldn't stand a chance. You know? would not stand a chance because you you almost can't do it without being deceptive you know and and for a christian this is inappropriate our words have to be trustworthy second thing might be that we have to be careful when accusing others of not keeping their word isn't that really what's at the heart and center here these corinthians paul sure he said i'll come visit you But then circumstances changed. And because of that, they now accuse Paul of not being trustworthy. You lied to us, Paul. Have you ever heard that before? People accusing one another. You lied. It's like, no, I told you what I told you and things changed. That irritates me like crazy sometimes. Especially within within Christianity when I hear Christians accuse other Christians of lying when it's not really a lie. It's because circumstances changed. They feel hurt, so now all of a sudden, it's like, when you lied to me, you said you promised. I had an individual one time who told me his parents, the hope and the, his parents had hoped to pay for their grandkids' education. But the dad had um, MS. The, the grandpa had MS. Well, the man all along expected his parents to pay for his kids' college education when they got that age. Okay. Well, the, the grandparents had hoped to be able to do that and said, we hope this is what we hope to do. However, as the kids grew and got old enough to go to college, 
go through 2008, the economy collapses, everything falls apart, right? On top of that, the MS and all of that kind of stuff, right? Mom and dad, grandma and grandpa no longer have the resources to be able to do that. And I remember when I asked this individual about, you know, affording college and all that, you could tell he was bitter because grandma and grandpa didn't pay for college. The son, um, the dad, said outright, they lied. They lied to us. And it messed up their relationship. Not just between dad and his parents, but now the grandkids. Because grandkids were promised a college education by grandma and grandpa and didn't get it because grandma and grandpa lied to us. And it broke my heart. I'm like, really? Really, dude? That was their intent. Now they can't afford to do it. So what do you expect? They lied. That's not a lie. And that's what Paul was facing here. And so I think for us Christians, we have to be very careful when we level these kind of accusations against others. We have to understand what's behind the word sometimes. Now it's important that they, when they make claims and make promises, that they do the best they can to live up to those promises, just like us. But we have to be careful. And like I said, I hear it a lot, especially among Christians, because we place high value on being truthful, don't we? The third thing we might draw from this is that our interactions, our words, and our behavior can sometimes come with a bit of grief and sorrow, especially when it comes to things like discipline. But that's when love towards one another, one another becomes really important. What I, what I find from this passage here is Paul, in the midst of the grief and the sorrow, never gave up on them. You notice that? I mean, he went and he visited. How many of us, if we had been in Paul's shoes, would go to visit the Corinthians and be blasted, apparently, the way that he was, being accused the way that he was, having his character called into question, his authority as an apostle called into question, his word and his trustworthiness being called into question, his sincerity, all of that being called into question. How many of us would go, all right, well, how do I deal with this? Well, I'm going to spare them another visit because if I go there again, it's going to cause them a ton of grief. Maybe I'll write them a letter instead. And yeah, it's going to be a brutal letter, but I'm hoping that they'll see my love as I do it. And maybe, maybe they'll come around to their senses. I think many of us would probably go, really? Dude, you're going to treat me that way? Talk to the hand, whatever it is, you know? Sometimes our words and our behavior, in fact, require a bit of grief and sorrow sometimes, especially when it comes to church discipline. But it's times like that where love has to be ultimately the motivator and has to come shining through with that. Um, Paul's going to address this a little bit later as he talks about forgiving an individual who had, I think it might be an individual who had accused Paul, but he's going to, I think it's the next week, Paul calls on them to forgive this brother who had sinned and really tells him, it's time to love this brother, but the words he uses go beyond just forgiving but being gracious to this individual. In other words, it's time to shower this dude with love. Even though he had sinned. In all likelihood, the Corinthians probably weren't doing that because those Corinthians that had finally come around and said, oh, you know, we were wrong, and boy, this guy over here, he, he was not good, and he was not kind to Paul. And they weren't going to let it go. And Paul says, no, it's time to forgive him and let it go. Shower him with love. 